iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? It's pretty patronizing, the idea that the only people who are valuable are the people who can code those that automated future. And eventually someone's going to automate the automators, and then I wonder who's going to be valued then. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from deep inside the Silicon Valley future machine. I am your host, Danny Fortson the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And this week, we have a fabulous guest for you. Lewis Hyman is with us. And Hyman is an economic historian at Cornell University. He's also the author of a fascinating new book called Temp, as in Temporary Worker. And given that we reside on opposite coasts, separated by 3,000 miles or so of amber waves of grain, uh, we did this over Skype. So if you hear a difference in the audio, that is why... But I think you will enjoy this. It's a bit of a deep dive into the present and future of work in this age of automation. And I think it will make you think about your own job, your own job security. And if you have kids, uh, it will definitely make you think about their education and not just the work world that awaits them, but the world that awaits them. Uh, so I fired five big questions at Professor Hyman, and well, really, I, it was more like 25, but you know, who's counting? And we're going to get to those, well, right now, but we, just before we do that, I'm going to let him introduce himself. So we'll get to that right now, and then on to the questions. Enjoy. I am Lewis Hyman. I am an economic historian at Cornell University, and I wrote a book called Temp, How American Work, American Business, and the American Dream Became Temporary. And it is a history of the remaking of the American workplace, of corporations and workers trying to understand why work has become so insecure over the last 50 years in America by telling the story of consultants, temps, and migrants in that transformation. Right. So I think what's interesting, because I'm obviously here in San Francisco in the kind of the, the belly of the beast for a lot of the tools, let's say, that have helped this transformation that you talk about. I mean, obviously, it's been happening in America, but it's been happening around the world, and especially in kind of advanced economies to one degree or another. And so I think some of the things you highlight in the book are just fascinating. And I thought, I'll just get to the first question, which is, is progress, technological progress as we know it, a zero-sum game. In other words, as technology develops and gets smarter and better at doing stuff that humans do, is that necessarily bad for all of us? Oh, absolutely not. No, I would say the exact opposite, that technological progress is the foundation of all the world's prosperity. So from 
most of human history until about two or 300 years ago, humans had the same level of GDP per capita everywhere in the world and throughout time. So the life of Thomas Jefferson was roughly similar to the life of a Roman senator in the ancient world. So I think what it does do, technological progress, and by that I mean productivity, productivity growth, is that it opens up the possibility of freeing us as people from tedium, physical tedium, and from intellectual tedium. And this is something that we should revel in. But the problem is, of course, that productivity is not, the value created by that productivity is not evenly distributed, right? It's a political question. It's not just an economic or technical question. And this is a lot of what the book is about. You know, we think about our economy as being driven by technology, but it, I argue, and I think it's a lot of historians would argue, that it's driven by the reorganization of our social relationships. And that's what I think is so exciting about the world today in terms of the independent workforce. So what is the modern workforce look like because you know you every day i hear about the the gig the gig economy but i don't really know exact i mean i know what that means but i don't know what that actually looks like yeah yeah and people talk about the gig economy as if it's invented by smartphones when actually freelancing has been on the rise for decades uh, and what really was makes uber possible is the rest of the terrible jobs that working Americans have access to working in restaurants and retail and warehouses. And this is the alternative, right? Technology is not what's really making that possible. What's making that possible is how terrible it is to work at Starbucks. You know, I think that when we talk about the gig economy, we're talking about the death of jobs that look like the jobs we thought we would have when we grew up, that we thought we would have stable nine to five jobs, that if we worked Good. We were good at our jobs. We would keep them and they would pay us more over time. And this just isn't true for a large swath of the American workforce. And it's increasingly an alternative. And so the question I have and I raise in the book is, you know, how do we make this into something that works for everybody? And how do we, you know, make the independent workforce work as well as the industrial workforce once did? So how many people are, are actually self-employed or, you know, gigging in one way or another? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And you'd be surprised how much disagreement there is. But it seems like it's between 30 and 40% of the American workforce, either as their primary job or as a supplement. This is a... Up to 40%. 30 or 40%, yeah, work as freelancers. And of course, less than about... It's about 1% that work through digital apps like Uber and Grubhub. And so the vast majority of these are people... Finding, it's only 1%. Yeah, it's 1%. That's so funny because I like the kind of, for lack of a better term, the mind share that that kind of the app-based economy has taken, it makes it feel like it's kind of, that's what everybody's doing. Yeah, yeah, no. But in fact, it's very few people. Yeah, there's more temps and traditional temp agencies working for manpower than are driving for Uber. But there are just millions of people who are working in this these freelance jobs you know, they might find their jobs through Craigslist or something like that, but they're physically working in the world. They're not mediated by an algorithm. And it's these people that are, you know, trying to figure out what this economy means. And so uh, that leads to my second question, which is, what is the difference? Because it does feel like there's a difference between the image 
that is spun by Silicon Valley, by the tech industry, in terms of, you know, everybody prays at the altar of automation. And that's all, you know, that's the direction everything is going. And what the actual reality is, because it feels like, you know, a lot of these, whether it's AI or app-based, you know, ride-sharing, whatever it may be, there, there does seem to be a growing class of actual people just doing different types of work, but we don't seem to talk about them very much. Yeah, I mean, I think that automation is amazing when it works, you know. I think it's kind of wonderful that people don't have to make change for me anymore when I'm trying to get money out of an ATM. I think that no human should do the work that a machine can do. And I think that is an important corrective to some of this anti-automation animus. But I also think that it's much more narrow than it's going to be. And I often ask the question, I ask the question in the book, you know, what's at stake in imagining an automated future? What's the political meaning of that today? You know, this automated future that never quite seems to arrive. You know, in the book, I write about the first Macintosh plant where it was touted as machines building machines, robots building robots. And it was actually women. It was like women of color, sometimes usually immigrant women of color, who were actually just building those Macintoshes. Yet they kept talking about it as robots. So it was kind of like the, the, the factory of the future was actually most, the work was mostly done by poorly paid immigrant women. Yeah, right. And somehow they don't count. They don't count as much. And these robots that are going to come, because this future is held out, somehow it makes this unequal present okay. And I think that we see that language a lot today. You know, I, a few years ago, there was this big controversy around TripIt, which was this expense platform. I don't know if people still use it or not to expense your, your travel and stuff. And it was all about automation and this and that. And it turned out that there was no algorithm. There were just a bunch of women in the Philippines looking at people's receipts and then typing them up into uh, computers. So it's like, what are we talking about here um, and what's actually happening? And, you know, so much of our economy today is not built by automated technologies, but by cheap Chinese labor and migrant laborers from Central America. And that's what's driving the economy. And it's an old story. It's a very old story. So, you know, I, I, I think it'd be great if things got automated and, and people didn't have to do boring jobs anymore as long as everybody got a chance to live inside. And so I think, you know, that's, that's the upside of these, these lords of automation. They, they often are in favor of the basic income, but because they think the rest of us are just not worth very much. We'll get on to basic income because that's a, a kind of a fetish out here. But it makes me, what you're talking about makes me think of a story that, I, so recently I did a story on content moderation. Which is really interesting because, you know, the estimates vary substantially, but there are at least probably, say, 150,000 or hundreds of thousands of people working mostly in India and the Philippines who are growing like this layer of workers who all they do all day every day is cycle through images and say, okay, that's okay, that's not, that's extreme, that's not, that's porn, that's not. But we never hear about that. What we hear about when Facebook talks about content moderation is AI and how machine learning is doing so great at weeding this stuff out. But it does feel like there's this whole kind of new industry that has grown. It's like the new call center industry, yet it's just completely airbrushed out of the conversation. Yeah, these are the lives of people that just don't count as much as the quote-unquote real workforce, you know, those white and Asian male engineers at Facebook. Again, it's an older story of, lines of gender and race and citizenship 
airbrushing certain people out of the picture, air, airbrushing out their experiences. And, you know, the idea that there's hundreds of thousands of people who are sitting there watching the worst cultural refuse, the most offensive things humans have ever created all day long, it's going to be come out as a kind of psychological torture experiment, right? I assume that's what you guys talked about. But it's yeah. I, do, I do worry about that, you know, the effects on people's minds, you know, my wife actually back when google so employed people for this project this kind of purpose did that that was her job for a while she thought it'd be awesome she could sit at her computer and check google image searches while watching law and order and she was like i can't do this this is people are she was like people are horrible and i can't do this for another eight hours and yeah i think that's that's the trick of it all is there a reason why there is this I don't know if it's deliberate, but, you know, saying to your point around the 1980s Apple kind of factory was based on migrant labor. We have poorly paid Filipinos and Indians doing a lot of this really difficult work now. Is there a reason why all we hear about is the automation or all that? That is the kind of the image that is spun. Is there some kind of reason, business reason why that would be the case? Well, I think all of us like to think about progress or we're, we're deeply emotionally and, you know, as moderns, we moderns are invested in this idea of progress. There's something that doesn't seem like progress if it's built on the backs of hundreds of thousands of poor brown women. It, it just seems much nicer to say there's, it's a win-win if it's just robots do, as, our, as our servitors. It's not the same thing when it's grandmothers or young women or middle-aged women in India having to endure your teenage boys' porn fetishes. It's something that seems, in fact, brutal and inhumane. And I think that's, I think that's what's at stake. And you know, we, we, we all want there to be a future of no scarcity, a post-scarcity economy and you know, robots doing everything. And you know what, the truth of the matter is, in some ways that already has happened, right? So one of the things I think is important to realize is that it's fall, it's October. If this were 1818 most of us would be out in the fields harvesting or getting or doing something to the to the fields and we're not because of the mechanical thresher right because of various kinds of agricultural automation technologies that were invented that reduced the workforce from almost all of us being farmers of some stripe to almost none of us right that's the real automated industry and that's good because then we get to make podcasts and write history books and you know do anything else but it does mean that some of us are still not doing fully human labor. We're still in moving things around and just being drudges and beasts. And I think that most people have something better to do with their time than make me coffee. And I think that's just a waste of a human life. You know, whether that person, the alternative might not be being a physicist, but it's it's something that there are more human ways to spend one's life than doing these kinds of tasks. Well, that kind of leads to, it kind of dovetails with what I was going to ask next. So question three is, is the corporation as we know it dead or on its deathbed? This is the question, right? So, you know, in the book, I write about what's new, right? It feels like we're in the middle of something new. And what's new to me is not that machines make other pe make people more productive. That's the story of the Industrial Revolution, but that the, that the corporation might no longer be as necessary. And I think we're seeing this in all kinds of ways, that individuals can sell their labor and their wares and their ideas and their culture globally. They can shop globally. 
experience life globally, all from the comfort of their own home. And this is quite different. They can borrow money globally. This is something that you didn't need, you needed a corporation to do 20 years ago. You couldn't have done this as a one person shop. And yet, you know, on Etsy, for instance, there are 500,000 full-time people, mostly women, mostly rural women, selling products all over the world. And that's kind of a lot of people. That's double the number of people that worked at Sears. And yet we're all talking about Sears and Kmart. And almost as many as work at Amazon today. Only under very different conditions, right? You know, rural areas. So there's a lot of ways that the language around this economy is also gendered. So that we talk about Amazon constantly, that from the men who run it to the men who work there and the men that it's displacing. We don't talk about Etsy as much because it makes frou-frou things and craft products. Yet it's a multi-billion dollar company too, only it empowers lots of Americans to live lives under their own control. And to me, this is kind of wonderful and amazing and the real American dream. I mean, obviously, on one hand, corporations are more powerful than they have ever been. Um, If you look at, you know, especially the tech companies, you know, the five biggest companies in the West, at least, are all based on the West Coast. I mean, how are we going to see that develop, do you do you see, in terms of that kind of that shift in the way that the economy is structured? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that so many of these companies are platform companies. They enable other businesses to run, you know, whether it's running through their cloud or running through their sales uh, platforms or connecting people. These are all platform companies. And, you know, they are quite powerful. They control, you know, one of the things we're all starting to realize is that who that controlling the data is controlling the future, right? Because you, if you, even all this talk of AI, if you really mean machine learning, machine learning is dependent on the data data sets to train that. And it's independent of the algorithms. All the algorithms are the same. It's, It's the data training sets that matter. And they have the data and they control that information. So on the one hand, that's something that we need to be wary of and cognizant of, um, you know, and they seem, they are, they do seem more powerful than ever. I don't know if they're as powerful as, you know, standard oil back in the day. I mean, I would have a hard time imagining Mark Zuckerberg shooting a bunch of coal miners and getting away with it. So this is, these are the, and that. Did did, did Rockefeller do that? No, not personally, but like, you know, but these, (laughs) but you know, these barons of the 19th century were quite comfortable. Uh, Carnegie, Carnegie and Frick, you know, they had, they armed, they had gun silos at all their factories, you know, GM in the 1930s installed tear gas tear gas. So it's when it's workers went in strike. Yeah. After the Flint sit down strike, they installed tear gas in all their factories. So like it's, you know, they control data, but like, you know, I, and, but I think that's something we can have conversations with. And it seems like even though there are people who are interested in making money, you know, I think at some basic level, they care about democracy too. And social media does seem to be like a different animal than a lot of the other kinds of issues around the digital economy. And so far as that, it connects our some of our worst instincts and makes them public. And I, I don't know what that's going to mean for the future. But I, this other part of the digital economy is pretty exciting, uh, the part where you can connect with people all over the world and yeah. not troll them. But just thinking about it as a worker, you know, as a, as a worker bee, do you have to get comfortable with insecurity? Is that the new reality? If corporations are going the way of the dodo, so goes, you know, benefits and paid time off and healthcare in America, healthcare and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it's absolutely frightening. But of course, we hung all those those forms of security on the employer-employee relationship. 
in the 1940s and 50s, right? So this is something that's pretty recent that before that moment, industrial capitalism was a great place to go and lose an arm, you know, to be cast out into the snow, to not have any kind of security whatsoever. So it's really not about, it's about what we sort of force these corporations to do, what we force these platforms to do, what we force as a society on capitalism and how to make capitalism work for all of us. And, you know, and it works better that way. It works better when uh, it's more evenly shared that the fastest growth in American history was in the post-war when we had the least income inequality, right? So, and the fastest technological progress. So it's, it's something to consider about. Hold on, the fastest technological progress? Yeah, definitely. So if you think compared, about- Even compared to today. Oh, I think so, absolutely. In terms of basic physics, you know, the standard, if you think about it, the standard model and everything that all the physics we work with today stopped being developed in the late 60s. Then suddenly physicists became interested in string theory and it became poetry and not reality anymore. And, you know, the, ref, the, the refinements, we were very refined 1960s technology, but it's still transistors and fiber optics and lasers and ARPANET. And, you know, it's. It's not the same as jets, going from no jets to jets, going from no antibiotics to antibiotics, going from no television to television, right? So there, there are, you know, and maybe perhaps it's overdrawn for some people and they're like, no, 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 my, my, my iPhone is amazing. Um, well, just watch some old movies. I think from, watch movies from the 60s and the world doesn't look as different as you think it might compared to, where are we, 2020 basically? So that's... 60, 40, 60 years ago. Look at a movie from 1900, 1900 to 1960. Uh, you'll, you'll be shocked. I think that difference is quite profound. So I, I don't know. It's something to think about. Yeah. And in just in terms of what you, as an economist and looking at all of these trends, is there one sector that is, or if you were a worker in sector X, you'd be like, mm, you better start thinking about doing something else because your job is about to be rendered, well, eliminated. Yeah, I'm very worried about the retail sector, retail employees. You know, there are experiments now where, you know, like the, the, the no shopping shops that Amazon are try- is experimenting with. Well, there's actually uh, literally a block away. Last week, Amazon opened a new Go store. I haven't even been in it yet, but apparently they just have some sandwiches in there and whatnot. But, you know, you download the app and... Thank God there's no carbon-based life forms that you have to deal with there. I know, right? It's it's Well, if you are a 23-year-old guy who hates talking to people, we have got the solution for you. The, the economy is set for socially anxious humans. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that there's going to be a lot of death in the retail sector, a reorganization of boutiques, but definitely downsizing um, and a reduction in number of workers. So I th- and how that's that sounds like quite a big deal though for the economy. I mean that's where people work, right? Most people are service workers and retail workers. This is a huge swath of the economy, and there's a lot of reasons why humans shouldn't do that work. But I also yeah. think that you know we haven't really set ourselves up for an economy of independence. We have trained students to obey in our classrooms for a hundred years to sit in orderly in a grid and to listen to their teacher, then listen to their boss. And that's not going to work in this new economy. And we really need to, and that cultural transformation, I think, is going to be much harder than the, 
than technological transformation. Well, so just we'll do a brief aside on this because this is it's very interesting. I'm working on a totally separate story on the Waldorf schools, which I don't know if you know. About. Oh, I mean a little bit. Uh, it's basically they don't use technology, and there's no kind of there's very little formal teaching. It's more about kind of providing the environment for pe- for students to inquire and learn on their own and ask questions. And it's just like there's a it's a whole philosophy that is com- completely 180 to this. Everybody sit in your desk and listen to what the teacher says. And their whole approach is around teaching children how to think and solve problems on their own. And it's very and it's very popular out here. Surprise, surprise. Well, there's certainly that there was this big stories in the Times this weekend about how Silicon Valley doesn't don't let their kids play with technology. No, I mean, there's a long tradition. There's this book written in the 19th century that I, I loved by Charlotte Perkins Gilman called Herland, which is about an all-woman society. In that society, there were no schools. There were just games. And they had carefully constructed games to educate everyone. And I think about this constantly when I think about what is the role of video games in our educational system, what we could be using that for. Imagine a world if Fortnite included some addition problems, I don't know, some math problems that, you know, are learning some other language. It'd be kind of amazing. So, But yeah, but that, that idea around like the, the necessary cultural shift that's going to have to happen as a result of all of this technological innovation, that's, that seems like a pretty profound challenge. It's going to be hard and it's going to take a lot of people. I don't know how we do it in time. I don't know how we do it quickly enough to adapt to how our economy is changing especially for older people or even for younger people. My students that, you know, I teach college and they want to know what it is they got to learn so they can get a job so they can be safe. And I'm like, look, you got to learn how to learn. doesn't matter what you learn. You got to learn how to learn. And they hate that, (laughs) right? They hate that. They want to know I got to learn Python or whatever. And then everything will be fine. I'm like, well, good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that, uh, so question four, and I may, I think I can maybe guess the answer is, Talking about the kind of corporations and where those are going and how they're developing, are unions dead? Are they never to return? Or is that like a brief moment in history that is that we're seeing the end of? Well, I think that the industrial corporation and the industrial union were born together as a reaction of workers' voice against this kind of industrial corporation, this industrial capital. And today we have we gotta have the same thing, the reinvention of unions in some new way that captures, again, workers' voice and worker power in this distributed economy, right? And it's distributed in forms of digital work and in terms of logistical work. Um, And right now, we don't have the organizational forms to counter the power of Amazon and Walmart in that space. And that's something that unions are struggling. It's hard to transform your institution. And that's what unions are struggling with right now. Just like the AFL struggled to make sense of the industrial workforce in the 1930s. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, well, that's why I think it's so interesting. If, if you think about any, really any regulation, uh, we've done some work on, you know, freedom of expression on the internet. This act, section 230 of the communications decency act or something from it was basically 20 years old and it's gives platforms kind of carte blanche to say we only publish things we take no responsibility for what is published what appears on our platform it feels like that is a bit outdated or it needs to be desperately needs to be updated it does feel like a lot of the institutions are kind of stuck in mud while the reality of the economy is kind of leaving them behind yeah, and I, when I talk to union groups, I say that are angry about Uber breaking the law because Uber basically broke all the laws everywhere and then made it legal. I said, look, guys, this is who you should be thinking about. How did Uber do that? How did Uber smash an entire regulatory regime everywhere and win? And why don't you guys do that? And it's hard. It's hard to do that when you feel like you have some some kind of stability or you alternatively feel like you're on the ropes and you just need to defend what you have. And as a, as a you know, looking at this as a historian, does that worry you just from a societal level? This imbalance, this great imbalance of power that seems to be getting more extreme? Yeah. I worry constantly because democracy is very fragile and you see non-democratic forms of capitalism expanding around the world especially through China. China uh, has malls and banks and all these things under the, under the legitimating ideology of communism, but it clearly is not communism. It's a statism. It's successful. It's working. You know, in Africa, they are developing, they are extracting resources and taking them away, just like we did with our corporations, only they're building schools and railroads in the, as we never did. So, you know, I think part of it is, are we going to be held accountable for this democratic promise to ourselves and to other people? And we really need to do that, especially in this globalized age. So question five is kind of what does history tell us about where we're heading? Or is it, in other words, are we in, in uncharted territory here? Or is this just, are we just in yet another point on a continuum? In other words, is this time, is this time different? Yeah, I mean, I mean, every time is different. So in that sense, yes, it's always changing. But I think, I think what history can tell us is that we have to act. That no magic force is going to suddenly make a more equal society. It's suddenly going to make capitalism work for all of us. It's an immoral, agnostic agent of profit and growth, and we need to make sure that it is doing that in a way that benefits people, not as a whole, not just a few people that does it in a way that doesn't destroy the planet, that does it in a way that balances its growth with the sort of stability of democracy. And this is something that 
we need to have an adult conversation about in this country on the left and the right, and we're not having it right now, largely because of social media, I think. Um, but uh, it's something yeah. that, and one of the things I emphasize in the book at the end are different policies we could enact to support the independent workforce on both the left and the right, because I think it's important that whatever your persuasion, you start to think about like what we can do to make this work for people. And his, what does history tell us? History tells us that you know, we have choices, but we have to make, we have to act. Um, we can't just let things slide. If things go to very bad places, if you just let large swaths of your population get left out. Well, that's what I think is so interesting also about being out here is that you talk to the big companies and, you know, humans, people are always seen as kind of a stopgap, a kind of almost a necessary evil on the way to automation, on the way to, you know, the making that perfect mousetrap. And it feels like that base of a kind of fundamental underpinning of that approach just seems problematic when you're talking about just society. It's also pretty patronizing, the idea that the only people who are valuable are the people who can code those that automated future. And eventually someone's going to automate the automators, and then I wonder who's going to be valued then. You know, there's always somebody smarter, there's always somebody stronger, you know, there's always somebody something. I like to think that no matter what, all of us count as people deserving of decent human lives. And that's the future I want to fight for. And technology is going to be an important part of it. We'll need these robots to stop the waters from rising and destroying all those companies in Silicon Valley, because <laughs> when the waters come, they're the first to go, as is New York City, right? So I think that I think that everybody's got to be in on this, and we have to make it work for everybody, just like we didn't want to have just a few robber barons in the industrial age, the Carnegies and the, the like, uh, taking everything. Lots of other people mattered, and those people were most of our ancestors. So yeah, that's an important thing to realize. Yeah, well, it is interesting to, if you look at the kind of the modern day robber barons, there is, I mean, there is an incredible constant, you know, the funnel is going upward, not downward in terms of value and wealth creation. And I don't know if, again, historically, if this is, it is more extreme now than it used to be, because I know at the height, the robber barons had, you know, I don't know what in modern day money they would have, but it was a lot. But I wonder if these platforms of the people that control them are more extreme than, you know, 100 years ago. It's insane the difference in wealth in these moments and how far things can get. And I think we can all agree that you don't need that next billion dollars to uh, live a decent life. I mean, this is one of the things that we're all nostalgic for that post-war period, but the top marginal tax bracket in today's money would have been about $2 million. And as soon as you hit it, every dollar after that, you got taxed about 93 cents on the dollar. So there's a reason why people, managers and owners were like, well, maybe I guess we should think about the long term because I can make two, $2 million for me is a lot of money. And like, you know, I want people who are amazing business people to make $2 million a year. That's great. Mazel tov. But I just don't think that you need five or 10 or a billion or 10 billion. I think that these, these are inhumane numbers because they're built on the backs of people who make less. So I'm cool with inequality to a degree, and I think most Americans are. I think it's a question of that scale and like where that money goes. And not just taxing them, but also thinking about what kinds of distortions are in place when there's no cap on the upside of the most brutal financial choices you can make, which aren't necessarily good for society. You know, if you're, you're an eye banker or a technologist, you know, trying to get to that IPO, trying to 
figure out who's included, who's not included. You know, and I think the hard part is, of course, for a lot of these companies, you know, they're not, they don't appear to be brutal companies at all, right? And you talk to these guys in charge no, of it. No, they're very fuzzy and they're doing great things for the world. They don't feel the same as, you know, exploiting a bunch of Irish workmen on a railroad in 1880 or something like that. It's hard to know where that brutality really comes in. And a lot of it is exported away to those women in India and in the Philippines who have to endure 10 hours of the hardest core porn you can imagine just to feed their kids at night. So, I mean, I think those are the kinds of questions we should be asking and not hiding from as we think about this. Um, and so lastly, I mean, it feels like what you're part of the reason you wrote this book is that you feel like we're kind of at a, on the precipice of that if we don't kind of step back and start thinking or asking some hard questions or passing some pretty fundamental changes to how the system is set up that we're headed to a very bad place as a society. So I guess one, is that fair? And two, is there any, I know you talk about policies, is there any one or two things that, you know, quick, easy wins that we could do to kind of balance the scales a bit? I think the thing to realize is that we're already in that bad place for a lot of people. A lot of people experience extreme insecurity. You know, the Federal Reserve found a few years ago that let's about 40% of Americans don't have $400 to spend in an emergency. JP Morgan Chase, that Jacobin organization, found that, you know, a little over half of all house, average households in America, like median households, like middle class people, are having month to month fluctuations of 30% in their income. Like, just try to get your head around planning a life. 20 to 30% of Americans are at the whim of an algorithm that schedules their work every week, that changes from week to week, not in San Francisco because you pass some laws, but most other places. And how do you take care of kids or go to school or do all the things that we're told are important? So I, I think that there are things we can do like creating some stability in algorithmic scheduling. Um, there's things we can do where we can start to expand the earned income tax credit we can start to think about debt forgiveness for school. But I think mostly we need to have really big conversations about what happens to people who don't go to college, you know, which is most people, people who have kids or parents they need to take care of, and how we do this while, while maintaining American values. And I do think there are American values we can call upon to correct course, conservative values about independence and autonomy that we lost sight of in the, in the quest for a stable wage job. And I think that's part of what the entrepreneurial ethos of Silicon Valley is speaking to when it speaks to people in America or around the world, but it's also something that is limited and hard to do without really supporting people and transforming the way we educate people and invest in one another in various ways in terms of money, but also in terms of healthcare, in terms of stability. And I think trying to reframe the conversation away from welfare benefits into investment in each other is part of the way we start to make that cultural change happen. And have you talked to any executives here in Silicon Valley? What has the reception been, you know, whether it's, you know, personally to you about, you know, whether they think, you know, oh, yeah, this is terrible, but it's kind of not our problem, or are they receptive to it? Or, you know, because I'm always amazed at how surprised companies are out here by the kind of 
what happens in society when they unleash whatever they've created out onto the world and they kind of abdicate responsibility more often than not. I think it's really important to talk about that, you know, and, you know, I've been having fantasies about writing a piece about how we should be taxing IPOs, you know, and that money should go every time somebody's IPO happens and they say, well, we're a corporation now. And, you know, if we go out of business, you guys have to deal with the carnage, but I'm taking my money right now. I was like, well, I want to be paid for that. You know, I, when you privatize returns and socialize risk, I want to be paid for that. We should be talking more about things like that. What about in the book I write about the Alaska Permanent Fund, which is the check every year people in Alaska get for being in Alaska because of the oil extraction. Well, in a lot of ways, we're living in a world where value is created by our history of good governance and laws and infrastructure. And we should be. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.